I never want to be the manager who told the Beatles that they've got too many rowdy guitars and they'd never make it. So you never want to turn off someone who potentially could be a star of the industry. In 20 years time or forever long as society goes, there will always be spaces for journalism mm. and journalists, especially the really good ones. Mm. But here's the thing, it's just that the jobs are getting fewer. So you've got to stand out. Welcome to the Writer's Hour. I'm Adam Burnett, your host, and with me is Sam Ferris, our producer. Sammy, nice to have you here. Nice to be here, Adam. Very exciting. This is episode one. It is indeed, and we've got a terrific guest lined up too. Um, I was very excited to speak with him, Robert Crash Craddock of the Courier Mail fame, and uh, I think uh, you've uh, had plenty to do with with Crash around the cricket traps over the years. He's an enthusiastic man, and that enthusiasm is infectious, I've always found. Absolutely. Just listening back to this episode, you realize just the passion that Crash has for journalism, for reporting, for storytelling. And he's been in the business for what, 40 odd years now? And that hasn't faded at all. It's, uh, he, it feels like he's just peaking at the right time and he's moving into uh, a new stage of his career. He's probably less in the papers now. He's more on TV. Maybe that's where the younger fans know him. And you really felt like he was putting on his TV persona during most of this chat. Uh, it was a fascinating interview and I found it really insightful. Yeah, he was a terrific chat crash. I, I had a feeling he would be, uh, as I say, the enthusiasm was was bubbling over. He was eager to talk. I think any chance to uh, spin a few old yarns, he's, he's happy to get going. But not only um, did we talk about the past, he sort of discussed the future of journalism as well and where he sees things going. And we also deep dove into a piece he did 20 years on from the, uh, I guess, the fall of, of Hansi Cronier, the, the late former South African cricket captain who was disgraced in a bookmaking scandal. Um, Crash called it the biggest story of his career. He, he made his way over to South Africa for what he thought was going to be a pretty humdrum one day series and he ended up staying on for two months following the the highs and the lows and the dramas of this cronier scandal it was fascinating listening and for i guess any young aspiring journo um, gave a real insight as to what it's like being on the ground during a, a serious controversy like this one and throughout crash put his own little fun spinner of course you can um you can actually read the story which i, I recommend heartily doing that's up on our Twitter page now, which is at the Writers Hour, and Sammy, I'm itching to uh, to get into this chat now. So, uh, have you got any housekeeping duties before we we do that? Yes, there is just one small piece of housekeeping we need to do. Uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Writers Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, basically wherever you get your podcasts from. Do that, and you'll be sure not to miss an episode. Perfect. Thanks, Sam. Well, that's enough from us, and here's Crash Craddock. Crash, thank you so much for joining us, mate, as our very first guest on the Writer's Hour. I'm deeply honoured, Adam, and as you know, I always love uh, going back in time with a few old yarns, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to be on your show. Excellent, mate. Well, I feel like it is a pretty high bar we've set ourselves having you first up, actually. It's, it's really great to have you on, and um, especially in this COVID crazy climate, because you're a guy who... I've found over the years, always manages to bring a, uh, a sunny disposition to proceedings, Crash. Uh, where does that come from, do you think, that sort of uh, glass half full mentality? Oh, I think behind the scenes, I'm a bit of a grim old soul, to be <laughs> honest with you, Adam. But I think in journalism, it, it teaches you that, that uh, every day there's a new deadline. You're never a hero for long. If you get a good story, you're never a villain for long. Um, although, oddly enough, someone said that to me, that the pain of missing out in journalism uh, always is always stronger than the joy of getting a good yarn. But mm. uh, that, I, I think we get used to being a bit rough and tumble, and that's the journey, and that's the fun of it all. Absolutely, mate. And I think, as you say, that that is part of the fun of it all. And I want to know where this journalism instinct or, or this journalism life even began for you, Crash. Let's wind the clock back. I, I wanted to know when you first entered the industry and, and maybe the abridged version of how you arrived at where you are today in, in the Aussie sports journalism world. Yeah, well, when we were in grade six at school, we took a visit to the Courier Mail, and I was just, that's the Queensland's main newspaper who I work for now, and I was just enchanted by the place. I saw they developed photos in front of us in the dark room, and images came to life, and uh, I've still got an image in my desk at home 
of the photo that came to life. Uh, a footballer called Jerry Fitzpatrick. When I worked at the paper 20 years later, I went and got the photo that I saw as a boy that inspired me. And there no it was, in the dusty old files. But the quick story, Adam, is uh, very average marks at school. Just got into a journalism course <laughs> at Toowoomba. Got a job at the Toowoomba Chronicle, which I loved in a paper that was just small enough so I got to do everything, but just big enough so there was people above me who knew what they were talking about who could teach me. But my big break came in 1982 when Rupert Murdoch opened a morning paper in Brisbane called The Daily Sun. And the boys who worked there in the sports section, do you know we're still great mates 38 years later? One of us was sick recently. At the end of his bed, there was me and four other boys who we worked with in 1982, a racing rider, a rugby league rider, the AFL rider himself. It was just, just lovely. And uh, so I was, and then, of course, I crossed over the Courier Mail where I've been for 35 years and it's been so much fun. Incredible, mate. That, it speaks a lot to, uh, to you and, and I guess the, uh, the camaraderie you build within the industry that that, that was the case. Yeah, and I, to, do you know what? Here's the, here's the weird thing. Um, one, people sort of say, what are your highlights from your career? And you're supposed to say this innings, that innings. But often it's some mad thing that happened to a journo <laughs> on tour, some stumble or bumble. And the weird thing about cricket riding too, Adam, and you know this from your experiences, your, your greatest rivals actually become your closest mates because you spend so much time away together on tour. And I know, you know guys who I travelled with in the 90s like Greg Ball, Malcolm Conn, Patrick Keane, who's now with the AFL, uh, and any number of direct opponents from Fairfax and AAP, they're some of my greatest buddies. And uh, we're, like, we're still like brothers 25 years later. So it's a real highlight of the industry. And, and I know when people say, what, what's your biggest highlights on tour? And you're supposed to say this innings or that innings or that five-wicket haul, it's quite often just something stupid that happened to one of the <laughs> journos, you know, that, that we still talk about when we get together. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, it's your lives as opposed to the cricketers' lives that, uh, that are most entertaining to you, which is, is pretty understandable. Now, mate, I was going to save this question for later, but um, uh, it seems pertinent now. Would you still advocate journalism as a, as a good career option for young people? What would your advice be? It's a good question, Adam, and it's one that I've actually put a fair bit of thought into over recent years because of the state of the industry. And look, this is the answer I tell young kids. I never want to be the manager who told the Beatles that they've got too many rowdy guitars and they'd never make it. So you never want to turn off someone who potentially could be a star of the industry. In 20 years' time, or forever long as society goes, there will always be spaces for journalism mm. and journalists especially the really good ones. Mm. But here's the thing. It's just that the jobs are getting fewer. So you've got to stand out. In other words, I say to youngsters, yes, you've got to get your degree, but go the extra yard. Build up your scrapbook. Because if I'm interviewing a young kid for a job, I'm saying to him, yeah, I know you've got your degree. Show me your scrapbook. Because journalism is about the art of going the extra yard. And that's what I want to see. Absolutely, mate. That makes a lot of sense. What about between um, sort of, those first footsteps you took in the industry and um, those uh, perhaps more laboured, slower footsteps you're taking into the offices these days, what's, the, what's been the biggest change between now and then? Just everything, you know. Like, I can still remember, we used to finish about 9 o'clock at night and we'd often wait around and hear the presses which started out the back and you'd smell the ink and they'd come in and throw the first edition on your desk. <laughs> and also, each state, Adam, was like a different country. I used to find out if I was scooped three days later when the interstate <laughs> papers arrived and they'd put them on a file. And I can still remember viewing a couple of my mates up near the files and they'd be going, oh, like this. And I said, what, what happened? He said, oh, mate, I've been done. I said, what, today? He said, no, last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it was extraordinary. But it, they were literally felt like a different country. So now there's the internet. We used to laugh at the one journalist in our office that used to be on television, our racing writer, Bart Sinclair, when he used to do the tips and we'd all stand around and point at the telly and laugh and, wow, how big was that? Now there's a uh, two studios which are 20 metres away from where I sit and guys are always going in and out. And, and only a few, uh, not long ago, one of our rugby league writers put on a bit of a turn because someone stole his makeup. <laughs> you know, and I thought, I never thought I'd hear that from a rugby league writer. I had it here. It was on the desk. Who took it? Oh, it was so up. 
yeah, you know, so angsty about it. And I just thought, this is that's the ultimate anecdote to how the industry's changed. The assimilation of, of the different strands of the media. But it's great. Adam, for all the struggles in journalism now, getting jobs and that, and I know it's contracting, but the best parts of it, the crackling internet stories, the, the, the multi-exposure for young kids like, you know, Tom Morris from Fox Sports and people like that, they're mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. And um, what about, you know, you kind of mentioned that there is that sort of internet exposure now, but I guess coming with the internet exposure, you also have that endless news cycle, the appetite for immediate news. Does it come at the sacrifice of quality at times, do you think? Sometimes it does. And, uh, you know, it can be actually overwhelming and exhausting. Uh, When the COVID lockdown took place, Mm. I thought, my goodness, how am I going to survive without sport? But you know, something Mm -hmm. really strange happened. It was actually the opposite. I feel refreshed. I got to Friday night and I never once thought, oh, what, I'm so missing Friday night football. And I realised I can actually live without sport, which has sustained me you know, my, and you know, my family for you know, mm. 30-odd years. So I, I do think that, you know, there's a massive influx of news, but the, the standout journalists you know, and the standout papers still stand out to me. You know, I... I you know, in cricket, you know, I love reading my rivals. I, I'm so in awe of them and from, from other papers and, and the great commentators still out. So, but, yeah, you're right. It is it's overwhelming, the, the flood of information. Uh, Crash, you're a pretty good storyteller yourself, mate. And um, well, there is one piece that I wanted to um, talk to you about. came out at the end of April. You put out a piece um, about the late Hansi Cronier, the former South Africa, disgraced South Africa captain, marking 20 years since his match fixing came to light publicly. Um, Cronier passed in uh, June 2002. But you spent um, two months in South Africa in early 2000, I think it was. You sort of were exploring that fairly shady world. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that crash? I mean, that must have been um, an experience uh, above and beyond sport, I guess. Yeah, I thought it was the most interesting story I ever covered, Adam. And Mm -hmm. because it was a Friday night... We were leaving for South Africa Sunday for nine days, three games. It was a nothing tour. I was sitting at home watching breakfast at Tiffany's while my uh, girlfriend, our wife, Elisa, was watching the same movie in in Melbourne. We're having a synchronised date. (laughs) And the phone rang and someone said, do you know anything about these phone tapes from Hansi Kronje from India with police claiming that he's a match fixer? And I said, I've got no idea. Mm. And from that point, that story ran for years. And we ended up in the middle of it. I was going for nine days and I stayed for a couple of months. I based myself at Neil Manthorpe's house in Cape Town. He's a brilliant freelance journalist and a close friend. But Adam, I remember getting, before I got on the plane on the Sunday, two days after the story broke, Ned rang me and he said, look, I have to know. Cronje claims these tapes are rubbish. Everyone's saying they're rubbish. The Indian police are saying they're right. Just tell me, is this story a total beat up, in which case it's three paragraphs in briefs, or is it the main story in the front page? Mm. Because it's nothing in between. Mm. And I said, I don't know. I was sitting in my seat in the plane. I said, let me find out when I get over there. But I said, right now, either South Africa are in a total state of denial or it's just a harmless beat-up. It took us days to work out what was really happening, but the cracks appeared, Adam, and, and finally he fessed mm-hmm. up. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask, I mean, for, for a young reporter, I mean, it, it's kind of a, in some senses, a, a dream gig to given, be given that much latitude, that much time. You're in a foreign country, but walk us through the mechanics of it. What do you actually do? What does your job look like through that two-month period? Uh, where do well, you start? I imagine it was ad- advantageous actually being on location. Advantageous, but very confusing. I mean, the boss mm-hmm. of South African cricket, Ali Barker, met us and said, oh, what about those Indian police? Seriously, have you ever dealt with them? And he sort of said, it's absolute rubbish. And um, so we were getting these denials. But here's the thing. Uh, my mate, Neil Manthorpe, uh, rang up the four players involved, thinking it was uh, a beat-up. The four players accused, you know, guys like Herschel Gibbs, uh, Henry Williams, uh, and Cronje himself, and none of them answered their phones. And as Neil said, if you were guilt innocent, wouldn't you be screaming it from the rooftops? Mm. And uh, so it was very suspicious. The South African assistant coach said, this is absolute rubbish one day. The next day he said, oh, this is a storm in a teacup. And we thought, uh-oh, 
There's no such thing as a teacup in match fixing. Mm. It's either an absolute tsunami or it's nothing, but there's nothing nothing in between. He's either guilty or he's innocent. And then, of course, he had a press conference where he wouldn't look people in the eye, but he sort of said, oh, look, I... It was like Bill Clinton when he said, I didn't inhale. He said, oh, look, I never <laughs> took money from a bookie in, in, uh, in India. No, it's because he took money from a bookie in South Africa. So it was little pieces sort of fell into place, but it was very, very dramatic. And Adam, I even went to the point, and I've never revealed this, but John Buchanan, the Australian coach, went to Hansi Cronje's press conference and stood at the back. And we're all very confused because he denied everything. And I rang Buchanan in his room and I said, I can't work this out, John. I, I don't know whether he's guilty or innocent. And I said, what do you think? You're a good judge. And he said, well, one of his statements was that he didn't bother listening to the police tapes, which, which he was allegedly talking to a bookmaker. He said, I, I, that staggers me. He said, that staggers me. He said, mm. he said, if you're innocent, wouldn't you listen to them to, to at least see who's this crazy voice? Mm. But he said, if you're guilty, you didn't have to listen to them because you knew it was new. So Buchanan said, I don't know. I can't say for sure. But he said he's either so innocent that it's just striking it off with abandon or mm. he's so guilty that he's just trying to trivialise everything. He said, I think he might be guilty. Wow. Well, let's take a deeper dive into this story, Crasher. It's a fantastic piece for those who haven't read it. We'll put it in the, in the show notes and we'll put it up on our Twitter page. Something I notice in your writing, and, and this is the way you introduce the story uh, on this occasion, it, it's the importance you place on, on the smaller things being relevant um, on a grander scale when it comes to determining someone's character. I think it's a really good lesson for writers. We see that in the Cronje piece uh, where you write, you introduce a story like this. Whether it be corrupting a cricket game or ordering a $5 plate of garlic bread, Hansi Cronier knew the value of a deal and a dollar. This isn't right. I'm not paying, he once said after perusing a hotel bill which a teammate suggested they split equally amongst the group. I didn't have a starter and I didn't have the garlic bread. And I mean, that's a terrific, it's a real leveler crash. Is that a technique you learned along the way or is it a conscious thing? Yeah, I think plenty have done it better than I have, but there was a, a journalist who worked for the Sydney Morning Herald in Greg Groudon in the 1980s. He's still around, but he once said to me, people love trivia. And he said, mate, in our world, we get access to... He said, if you can't hit them with the really big thing, hit them with the really, really small thing, that thing that personalises, you know? Mm. And I remember the day after he said it to me, I did an interview with Steve Warren in his hotel room, and by, beside his bed was a photo of a foster child he was sponsoring. And he, and, and he really loved this foster kid, and he would take the photo around, and it just showed a softer side of him. So I remember starting the, the, the feature story on Steve's love for his, for his foster child. and. I think, you know, as far as Hunsey was concerned, everyone has got that sort of mate. It's all right saying, you know, he was tight with his money, but it, we've all known that sort of person that goes, oh, are we really splitting the bill? Well, hang on. Mm. <laughs> I didn't have a startup. Like, he's worth <laughs> a fortune and he's arguing over a dinner bill. And then the next night, he would get the guilt over what he did the previous night and shout everyone dinner. Do you know that sort of split personality yes. where a guy, you see the real man on night one and then on night two, he's trying to do the cover up. And that, he was well known for that amongst his teammates of being, oh, what about the price of that? Oh, I'm not paying for that. Oh, hang on. I'll pay for everything. That sort of guy. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. And uh, your mention there of Steve Waugh, that seems almost like a recurring theme in your career, Crash. Um, you and Steve Waugh. I stumbled across a, uh, a line in Steve Waugh's autobiography where he's talking about you. He said, uh, and if you'll, you'll allow me to, to uh, voice this description, he said he respected your work ethic and then he added um, that you would, quote, feign the gibbering sidekick routine, asking questions with an innocence that disarmed the player and belied Crash's nous on what would make good print. I always found him professional and very likeable, but I also knew he wanted to break a story and like a gypsy getting inside a tourist coat pocket, he'd use all his acquired tactical acumen to prize information out of you. Now, Steve Waugh, <laughs> too, has a, has a good way with words, clearly, maybe a little he bit does. of help. But uh, yeah. how, how's that one, Crash? <laughs> well, for, for a start, he gave me far too much credit for having uh, any nous at all. Like, <laughs> and I can assure you, when I looked exhausted on tour and, and a bit stumbling, I was exhausted <laughs> and stumbling because uh, uh, that's how I felt most of the time. But I, I really enjoyed my relationship with Steve Waugh. You know, I, I, just he was so interesting as a player mm. and a person. Mm. And during the Hunsey Cronje affair, he was particularly interesting because I said in that story, 
oh, I, we said to him, it's time for us to really go hard at Hunsey and ask hard questions at our press conference, which was televised. But we whipped out. It was so overwhelming because he's mm. such a Machiavellian sort of uh, cool character and so dismissive, Cronje, that we sort of, we went a bit easy. And we were walking past Nets the next day and Stephen said, hey, what happened to your hard questions? Mm-hmm. And he was right. You know, he was such a shrewd observer of everything. But one of the highlights of, of covering cricket in the 90s was doing the war boys because of their mm-hmm. contrast. Like Mark loved to punt. Stephen had no interest in horses. You know, Stephen took a thousand photos on tour and every tour he went on, Mark didn't even own a camera. Mm. You know, they, mm. they were so, the way they played was different and they never touched each other in photos. Mm. We've got one photo on our system <laughs> of the thousands of the wars of them touching and it was after they won the Frank Worrell Trophy in the West Indies in 95 and Ray Titus said, come on boys, arms around each other. And Steve said to Ray, Ray, You've got one shot, and it's going to be five seconds, and that's it, and that's all he got. <laughs> but uh, but S War, yeah, great great value on tour, really was. And Crash, he raises a good point, which you, you sort of delved into there with that Cronier press conference. I mean, that is a something that young journalists will encounter. There's no doubt. There's times where you know superstar players, even even your everyday footballer or cricketer or whatever field you're in, sports or politics, wherever it may be, they can be intimidating. Uh, how difficult is it to ask hard questions and, and na- you know, as you're attempting to navigate the, the issue of maintaining relationships while writing the truth? Difficult, but I think, and that's why I think every journalist that ever toured with Malcolm Conn uh, from The Australian mm-hmm. uh, owes him a beer and a feed and a, and, a, and a pat on the back because so often Malcolm would sit front and centre in the front row and say, well, Steve, uh, in your last uh, seven innings, you're, you're averaging 19. Are you concerned about your test future? You know, and then we'd all use the answer. And so, mm. uh, but it's funny how sometimes the straightest journalists, the guys that are gun barrel straight, earn the greatest respect. In the book you were talking about with Steve War, he lords Malcolm Conn as being a terrific professional. And yet they had many very, very hard-nosed conferences, including 2001 in England when Michael Slater was dropped and Justin Langer was promoted and Steve said it was on statistics. And Mal says, hang on, Steve. Yeah, I've looked at Langer's stats from the tour and they're, they're really poor. So you can't justify it like that. And they went back and forth. But from that sort of firestorm can come a really strong mutual respect. And I think mm-hmm. that's what journalists need to remember. But it's not easy. I'll admit there's plenty of times when I felt cautious about asking questions at press conferences. It's not easy, you know, to, and that's where I felt con was quite outstanding, actually. And um, back to the Cronier piece and the, the idea of getting details, um, which is, it seems like a recurring theme in, in this journalism and writing gig that we do. You've written a line here. News of the tapes broke at a Friday afternoon police press conference in Delhi, which rocked the sporting world. And then you say, it was so stunning that an Indian journalist went up to the local police chief after the conference and said privately, you have just changed the cricket world. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Mm. I mean, that detail, why are lines like that so important in journalism, Crash? Well, you must remember that three quarters of the world for a week and a half were saying, fancy these Indian police, you know, you're kidding Mm. So I rang up a journalist called Kuldip Lal, who was based in Delhi and who knew the whole network of Delhi. He was an experienced cricket journalist and wire journalist generally. He was at that press conference and he went up to the police chief, KK Paul, and he said to him, like, because he said Paul was quite, uh, not nonchalant, but just matter of a fact about, oh, this is a press conference to announce that Hunter Crony has been caught uh, due to a, a, a planted phone that we put in for, for other reasons and he's been taped fixing games. And Kuldip had my question, is this for real? So he went up to KK Paul and he said, you have just turned the cricket world on its ear. And Paul said to him, yeah, but, you know, we chase criminals like this every day and, and we're sure it's him. We, we've traced it. We've had his voice identified. It's, it's, it's a huge deal for you. It's not for us. Like mm-hmm. we just... We had no agenda. We weren't even looking for the guy. But I'm telling you this, it is him. It's 100% him. So, and, and they went back and forth. Are you sure? Mate, it's just him. And so that, for me, was a really important piece of the puzzle because Kuldip Lal, I trusted him and he trusted KK Paul and KK Paul didn't trust Cronje. So it's sort of, that was an important piece of the puzzle for sure. 
So you've mentioned Cool Deep, and earlier you mentioned um, Neil Manthorpe in South Africa. These these uh, contacts that you establish along the way, Crash, uh, again uh, seem like another important slice of of the journalism pie, if if you like. And has that been something that you've tried to consciously build throughout your career? Yeah, I, I, I think so, because you've got to try and know the way to the story. And I still find it hard every day, Adam, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you can be, I've been wrong on stories this month, you know, where I thought, oh, I just got that wrong. It, it becomes harder as you get older, not easier. But also it helps you get the little stuff that tell a story. Mm. I mean, Neil Manthorpe told us a story about a, a double wicket competition um, uh, where just before the Crony story broke, where Lance Klusner who was uh, the, the whistleblower for Indian police, allegedly, he just had enough of Cronje. And Cronje tried to talk to Lance. And Lance said, no, I wouldn't even say good day to him. When he went back to the dressing room, he put on a bit of a turn and said, you know, this is you know, ridiculous. He said, Boucher and Callis are the only two that's taken it all seriously. And it's that sort of, I think, the more you know journalists who know their own teams, you get those little stories that make a difference. Mm-hmm. I don't claim to know the South African team well, but... Neil does, and he gets that the vignettes which tell their own tale. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, and then you you sum up Cronier quite nicely in this sentence. I, I like this sentence. It's um it's a not got a nice sort of tone to it, a nice momentum, and it, it says God fearing, non gambling, straight laced handsy voted for six years in a row as one of South Africa's favourite five personalities was being accused of being a bald faced cheat. Now, not just a cheat, but a bald-faced cheat. It's a really nice build-up to that blunt, contradictory end of the sentence, bald-faced cheat. It's three syllables versus that sort of long intro into it. Do, do you sort of think about that when you're writing, Crash? You, you do. And I, I, I was trying to get the contrast, Adam, because you've got to remember that every day in South Africa, there were stories for a week and a half just criticising and, and uh, almost laughing at the Indian police and, and putting Cronje on, on a pedestal. I mean, South Africa ended up winning that one-day series against Australia. And when they did, their new captain, Sean Pollock, raised the trophy and said, this is for Hunzi. I mean, it was extraordinary, the level of denial. So although when, they finally, when he finally confessed, when Hunzi finally confessed, there was the next day they are absolutely into him headlines like, how could you, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, and that summed up the shock of the nation. But that, because he was sort of seen as, as a religious person, a non-gambler, a great role model, and you must remember South Africa had only just emerged from the grips of apartheid and they needed a hero who united the nation, and he did. There were all sorts of skeletons in his closet, and, and one that was very rarely written about was when he accidentally killed a child in a road accident. He was driving late at night through a township and he killed a young girl who ran out in front of his car. He jumped out of the car. The locals surrounded him and his life was in danger at that point. But he somehow talked himself out of it. You know, many a person, you know, and and no one could believe how he somehow got back to safety in Durban, I think they were based at that time. But he became a bit mentally demonised by that. And there's Mm -hmm. there's a feeling that that actually resulted in him falling off the rails as a person yeah okay okay and crash i guess it's so comprehensive the way you're able to put this piece together a lot of that seems to be because you were there and and i guess on a a smaller scale right now obviously with the pandemic we we can't be talking to people in person but uh, it, it goes to show how critical it is to be able to if if it is possible to to talk to people in person to be on the scene as opposed to sitting at your desk using your phone? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a terrific thing. I mean, one of the great, uh, Phil Wilkins from the Sydney Morning Herald used to always say, he used to love going to training, just to sitting behind the bowler's marks and, and, and talking to other journos. It's amazing the stuff you hear. Even turning up 15, 20 minutes early from a press, for a press conference, as Wilco used to do, and mm-hmm. just listening to the patter, you get a fair idea of what's happening around the place because... A lot of people, if they get a good story, they can't help but tell other people, you know. So, but you're right, just being there and, and, and getting a, a sense of it. And, and, and that's why I, you know, so admired some of the touring journalists that I, you know, uh, Malcolm Conn, Greg Baum, uh, Patrick Smith is keen, all, all these guys, Alex Brown, you know, wonderful journos that were 
you had to be on your guard every day. And if you had a, a you had a day where you beat one of those guys, I tell you what, we always used to say you've had a good day. Yeah, mm. Mm. Uh, mate. Uh, following up your bald face cheat line, you you almost lighten the mood a little uh, with a a nice little analogy where you say it was like, and it, it kind of relates back to the way Cronier was so lauded in in South Africa. You've written. Uh, it was like catching Santa Claus sneaking back up the chimney after swiping your wallet from the couch. Now you've lightened the mood there. It, it's a it's a tough tough game putting those analogies in there. Sometimes you you sort of nailed that one, but are there times where they fall flat? And I mean, is that a, is that a dangerous practice for the young it writers? Do you reckon? Yeah, it, it, look, it really is, uh, and, and and plenty of mine fall flat too. <laughs> but but I've often found that sometimes analogies are a good way of brightening up a piece if you're not a great writer. I mean, I I, I read sort of uh, you know Pete Lawler's a, a beautiful writer, Malcolm Knox and, and Greg Bulmer, people like that. They don't need analogies in their stories. You know, got a beautiful way with words. But sometimes I, I say to young journalists, a simple analogy, just one a story. Like I remember Peter Roebuck. Uh, once just talked about a guy and he said, oh, his teammates generally found him as annoying as a dripping tap. And, and I mean, that's a run of about eight words, but it's everyone knows what he was getting at. Mm. And I thought it was mm. a really cute little, little, little run of words. And, and so I find that analogies are not that hard to think of and they can lift your copy a little bit if you're mm. not uh, words worth and most of us aren't. Well, mm. you're very good, Adam. I've got to say, you don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Greg. But yeah, I, I do find that sometimes they can be hard to come up with. I, I guess, um, You've got to have a knack for them. You you mentioned um, your conversation with Ali Baka when uh, you arrived in in South Africa, and you you talk about it in your piece. You said um, when a journalist opened a press conference by asking Baka if quote if Hansi's denials are true, Baka cut the question off and fired back with, "What do you mean if you you sort of put yourself straight on the scene there? You're adding a lot of credibility to your own piece by saying, "Look, I'm here. I'm on the scene." Is, is that the intention there, Crash? Yeah, yeah, it, it was. And I, and I actually still remember that moment. And, and I, I just remember that, you know, those press co- I very rarely listened to a press conference more than once. Mm-hmm. But over there, we were desperate to find out whether Cronje was lying or he was, he was innocent and had been horribly wrong. So we were looking for every little nuance. And, and that really struck me how firm Bucker was. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. soon after that, I heard that, South African cricket, the initial denial they said when they came out Friday afternoon when the story broke and said, Hunsey has described the claims as outrageous and totally untrue. They hadn't actually even spoken to him. They put those words out before speaking to him, knowing that if he went down, the whole ship was going down anyway. So they had to almost believe he was true, innocent, and hope uh, hope that he was innocent because if he was guilty, everyone's going down. But yeah, Baka was an interesting study because initially he was totally in denial because he had to be. He thought, mm-hmm. my God, please don't tell me this is right. But then when Hunsey rang him at 3 a.m. in the morning, Ali, five hours later, rang Malcolm Conn from The Australian and he said, and Mal said he can still hear the words. He said, Malcolm, I think we've got a problem. And that was Hunsey had confessed. And I don't believe Ali Baka ever got over the Hunsey Cronier affair. He, he, when I spoke to him a decade later, I said, you know, you, you, you did a pretty solid job as an administrator. And he sort of said, there'll always be Hunzi. And yeah, uh, he wow. said, I'm not sure I will ever get over it. So it, it cut him deeply. Mm, mm. And Crash, I mean, your, the way you finish a piece is really nice here. Um, again, putting yourself on the scene, you, you, it's first person, which again is, can be a tricky thing to negotiate, but this whole piece is, is in that theme. And you've written, uh, I made a visit to... Cronier's residence in Fancourt with photographer Anne Lang, who took photos of him against his wishes before he agreed to pose for some. Quote, I said sorry when I made a mistake and so should you, Cronier said to Lang with reference to the photos. And then you just finish with two short sentences. You say, he sounded persuasive. He always did. And bang, that's the end. And I mean, this is, you know, on reflection, we're now talking about a guy who, you know, he's been disgraced. He he was clearly a, uh, a careful and a manipulative liar really but um it, it was tragic nonetheless the way he went and it was it just seems like a really nice way to round out this piece both in terms of short short sentences to the point but getting your point across yeah it was interesting adam as you were going through that run of words my mind flashed back to the Farncourt court golf estate where he was living 
mm-hmm. and I was and uh, I was riding around on a golf cart uh, there, and he wasn't at his home. And Anne and I had flown all the way down there to get photos of him or to try to. So I rang up a mate of mine in Toowoomba, and I was on the phone to him, and I said, "Mate, I've had a shocker. We've come down here, and we can't find Hansi. He's <laughs> nowhere to be seen." And at that point, he came around the bend in the road in his four-wheel drive, looked straight at me, and he waved his hand. Because I'd known him a little bit, not a lot. Uh-huh. And then I waved, and as I said to my mate, so we can't even find him. And I said, <laughs> hi, Hansie. Like, <laughs> as I waved. And I said, well, it's got to go. And my mate, he still tells the story. And we reminisced about it only a few weeks ago. But so I went and I knocked on his door. And uh, we were lucky because the guard he had at his place was having an hour lunch. So uh, he disappeared up to the cafeteria. So Hunsey came out and said, oh, mate, I don't want any photos taken. And Anne, Anne just went, she couldn't risk him going back inside. So she went, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And he said, I want that camera, uh, that film. And she said, no, I can't give it to you. So it was quite dramatic. And it was the last time I ever saw him alive. But mm. um, I, I just, yeah, he, 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 he left an impression. And even after he died, he was still very popular in South Africa. It was almost as if he was a tragic hero. But... Mm. Honestly, what he did and the way he compromised his power was really shameful, Adam. It really mm. was. And Crash, a story like this, I mean, you said it was probably the most interesting one you've ever worked on. It is this almost what, what you do the job for? It carries so far beyond sport. I mean, I know we're in the sports field, but a lot of it becomes, you know, human interest or crime or whatever the case may be. And is that where the good stuff is? Oh, yeah. Look, it, it, it is why you do this do the, the you know you might get only a couple of experiences like that in your career mm. and i know how vivid it was for me because as you're talking so many images are coming into my mind adam like yeah, the time wow. when bronwyn wilkinson who was the south african media person i mm-hmm. can still see the couch we were sitting on the australian journalist she said to us i believe hunsey i believe him but if he's lying i will give him up to you in a heartbeat and she just walked over to our couch one day after uh, and she said you know what i'm officially worried we're in the car park about 10 minutes ago and hunsey i told hunsey i'd get pollock and donald to talk at a press conference defending him and as he got in his car uh, he sort of said yeah uh get them they knew nothing about it and then he looked up looked at her as if say oh hope she doesn't click to what i've just said but she did and she said you know what I think he's right for this. And this is Bronwyn talking mm. to us. So, you know, I can still see the expression on her face in that moment when she realised that this guy who she's been defending was actually a bald-faced liar and a cheat. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's the moments that never leave you. Like mm. in that story, it didn't take me that long to write because, you know, it was just so they, 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 almost as if they're hardwired into your, your memory, those, mm. those big moments. Can you imagine it today, Crash? I mean, it would just be, uh, obviously it was a circus 20 years ago, but the onset of social media and, oh. and you wouldn't have got close to his front door, that's for sure. No, we wouldn't have. But I will say this, Adam, that the biggest, one of the biggest regrets I have is that there's no way that we cracked the match-fixing uh, stories in, in cricket to anywhere near their true depth. I mean, yeah, Phil okay. Wilkins from the Herald got the Sully Malik story in 1995, the first one, brilliant journalist, great news break. Malcolm Conn did wonderful work in Pakistan uh, when he flushed out Shane Warne and Mark War as taking money for information. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was Hunsey. But I've always said this, that if I could walk into a room where every match-fixing transaction was written on a wall, every one that's ever taken place, if I could take you into that room, Adam, we'd both faint, I reckon. Mm-hmm. We'd say, him? Him? Mm-hmm. Are you serious? Him? Because it was everywhere, but it was done in cash. It was done in players were paid in, in biscuit tins, you know, like the money would be cash in a biscuit tin and they'd just throw it in their captains of throat in their kit so uh yeah we never got to the bottom of it and i still think it's around yeah incredible mate uh, i, I want to change pace um for a moment and uh, talk about the way in which you've written this story i, I did mention the first person approach and uh, it, does that take some getting used to crash uh, i mean you obviously don't want to make the story about yourself but in this case you know it was hard not to put yourself into the story is that something you're comfortable doing just inserting yourself into the story is it an easy thing for you to do nowadays? I think inserting yourself in the story is something you do only selectively. Uh, And I was very reluctant to do it for many years. 
after being told the I word is a bad word to put in. But I think as your role changes and you become a columnist, there is a, sort of just a feeling that occasionally, you know, there's a personal anecdote that can enhance the story, but mm. you certainly wouldn't want to overuse it. That's for sure. Um, because I think, you know, there's nothing worse than a columnist that's always writing about themselves. Yeah. hundred percent, mate. I guess when we see, um, we've seen your cricket legend series on Fox sports, uh, Obviously, that's not um, part of the art of writing, but I guess what we do see on that is they're entertaining because you're well-prepared and and the same thing applies there, whether you're writing stories or doing interviews on TV, is preparation, interview prep. What is the key to that preparation? What, what do you like to try and dig up in your research to, to make the interview really sing? I try and read one book on the person I'm writing about. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm interviewing. And, and I think, you know, if, if most of the guys have done an autobiography where they've told their life story and, and, and I've tried to read at least one book on each of them. And, and I found that there's so many little stories about them that, uh, that, 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 you know, that we can go over again and some big ones that are worth revisiting. It's always a, a fine balance to work out whether you try for fresh stuff with, without missing the big stuff that people want to hear about, that, you know, that they're the iconic moments of someone's career where you know the viewer will be sitting, oh, I can't wait to hear, you know, Mike uh, Shane Warne talk about the Gatting Ball or, mm. or Stephen Ward to talk about his innings against the West Indies or in the World Cup. You know, like you, you, need, you, you need that, uh, that balance. That's a good point. What about first-year journalist interviewing uh, the local footy player trying to make, make the you know, Broncos as halfback or whatever the case may be? What, what about at that level, Crash? If, if, if you want to learn a little bit more about this unknown player, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the player themselves or are you talking to people around them? And, and if, if the latter, who, who are those people? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question because so often the best information about a person comes from other people. Mm. I always find parents are good to talk to because they're normally so proud of their kids mm-hmm. and they remember the start of their journey and the significant moments. I mean, that can be as simple as uh, Jake Turpin, uh, the Broncos utility player. You know, his father tells a great story about Jack, who's a terrific ta- Jake, who's a terrific tackler and we said where do you learn to tackle like that he said I remember when he was 10 years old in in an aisle at Woolworths Jake decided he was just going to tackle me and he just broke a barrel (laughs) and and and, and, you know it was sort of even from that age the kid was a crash tackler so parents are good and you often normally find everyone you know has got a best mate who's gone the journey with them and I think with Marnus Labouchain this was interesting Jimmy Pearson the Queensland Bulls captain and Marnus had gone to school together. They'd caught buses home together. Uh, they'd played club cricket together. Jimmy had heard Marnus talk in Afrikaans on the phone, on the bus to his mum. He'd seen his journey from an from a ambitious young teenager into what he is today. And so if you can find that guy who went the journey with him, you'll get a lot of gold. And that comes back to ringing around, doing what you said earlier uh, about that key, key journalism credo of going above and beyond. Oh, it does. And uh, look, there's so much. I used to have a creed that when a, a new Australian player came on the scene just before they got there, I'd try and have a good long chat to them so that you'd have this mine of, of little anecdotes that you could drip feed through and, um, you know, um, sometimes you saw it in front of you, like Michael Kaspervitz going from uh, school to train at the Gabba when he was playing for Queensland at age 17. You get to know his mother and she had three boys and she gave him a copy of Dennis Lilly's uh, How to Play Cricket, you know, his, his manual. So sometimes you saw it all, but other times you have to dig further. But it's good to get in early with the player. Get in early before they're big and really get some good stuff. Mark Gately from Sydney wrote a terrific uh, story on the War Twins just as they were breaking through and he got all this lovely early stuff and great photos, which I still refer to today in stories about them. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I, I guess winding the clock back, 
to then crash those early years and, and then fast forwarding through the decades to now. I mean, it, it's been a long time in the industry for you. I guess I said at the top about the, the sunny disposition that you managed to retain. Who does inspire you these days or, or what inspires you to, to keep doing what you do? I find inspiration comes in different forms throughout your career. Like right now, uh, I find Trent Dalton, the young Brisbane author who wrote a boy, book called Work Boy Swallows Universe, it sold more than 100,000 copies around the world. It's been just wonderful. And uh, he sits about 40 metres from me in my office. He works for The Australian. I'm with The Courier Mail. But I find any excuse to go past his desk and stop and chat because he's so full of enthusiasm that it rubs off on you. And I love what he's done. I thought his book was just fabulous. But inspiration can come from strange ways. And I'll give you one. Uh, on a Saturday night, I live near Albion Park Trots. And I go down there and I wander around the stables for an hour. And there's a lady who trains and drives horses called Lola Wiedemann. Mm-hmm. And she's the hardest working worker in the industry. And I estimate that over her career, from the earth to the moon is about 384,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. And I worked out one day, she's driven her float over her 40-year career to the, from the earth to the moon and back <laughs> twice. So when I see her, I always say she makes me feel like a weaker man, but a stronger man. So I think I couldn't do one day of your week, but it makes me think stop whinging, get on with it. So inspiration can come from inside the industry like Trent Dalton or, or just someone who's a hard worker that makes you think stop whinging, get on with it. What is it about Trent Dalton that's uh, inspired you, Crash? Oh, he, he's so humble and clever. Like, I can't believe he hasn't been snapped up by the television networks. I mean, they think Timothy Dalton is debonair, James Bond. I mean, I think Trent Dalton's got him covered. He did a little uh, video in about our office that they had to show in the foyer about four years ago. And um, it was done really quickly. And he sort of said, oh, I'm not a television sort of person. Well, it was brilliant, you know, and he's got all the skills. He come from a very humble upbringing and uh, he's got no ego with himself in the story. Like he just, he asks really simple, sincere questions. And as I said, he can, he can write a new story, a feature, colour, you know, he's a great all rounder. I, I think uh, he's one of the brightest talents in the entire industry. Crash, let's look back at your career across the span. The most nervous you've been to interview someone, who, who was that individual? Yeah, well, sometimes the most difficult interviews aren't actually the big names uh, or the super big names. But uh, I was tremendously nervous to interview Andrew Simons on Cricket Legends because I've never spoken to him for about 14 years and I'm still not quite sure why we actually fell out. But uh, I think it had something to do with, you know, Andrew early in his career sort of probably underachieved a bit. And I went in reasonably hard. But so there we were at Cricket Legends. And I thought, I wonder how this is going to go because it was independently set up. And uh, I walked into the green room. He was there. And he, and, uh, he said, oh, g'day, mate. I said, oh, how are you going, mate? I said, how are you catching any fish at Townsville? Uh, he said, yeah, it's been a pretty good old winter, mate. Going all right. And it was as if nothing had happened. He looked <laughs> forward and didn't look back. And I think sometimes the best interviews are people who you don't actually get along that well with, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but I get on well with him fine now. But he was terrific. He was just completely transformed character from the person who at times in his career could be very difficult Mm. and uh, he was so honest about everything to the point where I just kept on asking him hard questions (laughs) and I felt he responded really well. So that was one time when I was, I must say, I was very nervous. It's a good point though. You sort of um, picked up on his willingness to go deep and and you, uh, you ran with it. Uh, I remember that interview. It was, it was, uh, it was quite a revealing one, wasn't it? I mean, all the monkey gate stuff and the the difficulties with the 2007-8 India test series and all the controversies around that it was such a difficult um, topic but when when they're willing to go into it you sort of run with it well his teammates to be fair to him even when he was having a lot of troubles with the media guys like Matthew Hayden would say look I can see why you guys don't like him I've seen how he can treat the media but he is a good man he leads a life of service he's the first person to help someone else out in the dressing room. And when guys like Hussey and Gilchrist and Ponting all say the same thing, you mm. knew that there was a different guy behind the dressing room door. So, And I think we saw it there. Like Andrew Simons felt the game let him down over mm. the monkey gate affair. Mm. And, but he also concedes 
he let himself down. I mean, his behaviour during the past few years of his career uh, was, you know, poor at times. And I, I think he, he had a broken heart and lost interest. But wonderfully talented player and just such an interesting personality. Mm. I mean, mm. there was a time when every sponsor in Australia wanted Andrew Simons on their books because he had an edge about him. And I think that's when his problem started because he signed up to all these deals and it was just very hard for him to... He was never a corporate sort of guy like Adam Gilchrist. Mm-hmm. And Crash, um, one question I want to ask uh, all of our guests, so it's a nice one to round out on. Dead or alive, you can interview or write about or go deep with anyone. Uh, who would it be and, and why? I would love my old mate Bill Brown to come back to life and so I could have one last <laughs> hour with him. He, uh, he lived up the road from me, the opener of the Invincibles in 1948. And he was just an uh, incredibly interesting person. I'd go to his house for dinner. He would chop wood. He'd turn the lights out and put the fireplace on. <laughs> and he'd tell wartime stories about how in Brisbane you had to have your lights off and they'd tap on your window if there was any light seeping through the police would, you know. Mm-hmm. And so because he's... Because his uh, living room was like that, with just a fire, and I felt I was back in 1948. <laughs> he told stories about Bradman, and uh, I would love to to have gone to England with the boys on the boat for six weeks. It just sounded like so much fun. They were such an interesting generation, but I just felt there were so many questions I didn't ask Bill. He was pretty. He said to me one day, "Look, I haven't got much long to go. Ask me anything." And I asked him about Bradman and uh, who he liked. Bill O'Reilly and all that, but I just, I'd love to, love one more hour with Bill would do me. I saw him the day before he died and I said, have you got a, a wish? And he said, yeah, I want to have a scotch before I go. So I went out, bought a bottle of scotch, <laughs> brought it in, poured it in and he just drank it straight, drank it neat. And I always regretted. I thought, oh, I don't want to get him drunk. I won't fill this glass too big. And I, I, I if I went back in time, I'd give him more, more than the little <laughs> bit I put at the bottom of it. But he was quite a guy and he was my, my hero in cricket, Bill Brown. Well, Crash, uh, I can imagine uh, you and Bill Brown talking for much more than an hour, I reckon. But, uh, mate, you've been very generous to give us an hour. So thank you so much for joining us on the very first episode of the Writer's Hour. Pleasure, Adam. And it's lovely to go on with someone with whom I've got. I've really enjoyed your writing over the years, mate. And uh, we could all learn from you and the time you put into a story. It just shows in everything you do. Congratulations. Keep up the good work. And it was my pleasure. Good on you, Crash. Thank you very much, mate. I really appreciate it. Thank you.